Welcome to Buddha at the Gas Pump. My name is Rick Archer, and my guest today is Michael James. Welcome, Michael. Here's a short bio that Michael sent me. He said, uh, between 1976 and 1985, Michael James studied the teachings of Sri Ramana under the clear guidance of one of his foremost disciples, Sri Sadhu Om. Together they translated into English all the original Tamil writings of Sri Ramana and also Guru Vachaka Kovai, excuse my pronunciations, the most profound, comprehensive, and reliable collection of the sayings of Sri Ramana recorded in 1255 Tamil verses composed by Sri Muruganar with an additional 42 verses composed by Sri Ramana and various works of Sri Sadhu Om such as Sadhanai's Sharam, Sharam, the essence of spiritual practice. Michael's principal interest is in the philosophy and practice of self-investigation, Atma Vichara, self-inquiry, as taught by Sri Ramana. And he has written a detailed book on this subject, Happiness and the Art of Being. It's a beautiful book. I've, it's about 500 pages long. The introduction alone is about uh, 65 pages or something. And so I must confess I haven't <laughs> finished it, but I've really been enjoying it as far as I've gotten. Yeah. It's very rich with uh, clarity and meaning in every every paragraph. So lay it out for us, Michael. The way you start your book uh, when you first begin writing it is that the essential nature of creation is happiness and in fact the title of your book is happiness and the art of being yeah. why is that and how do we know that well it's not quite the essential nature of creation it's the essential nature of the reality okay it's the creation the manifestation which actually obstructs the happiness because our essential nature we are infinite as they say in, in, in uh, Vedanta philosophy, Satchitananda, that is being, consciousness, and bliss, happiness. And that's uh, beginningless, endless, undivided, infinite. So that's our real nature. But we now have somehow got ourselves into a situation where we seem to ourselves to be a finite being, a body and uh, a mind that takes that body to be I. And this is what we take to be ourselves. So we do experience happiness in little bits and pieces, mixed up with the opposite of happiness. We also experience a fair share of unhappiness or dissatisfaction in one way or other. That is, we can never be fully satisfied because our nature is infinite. We can't be satisfied with anything less than infinite happiness. And so long as we experience ourselves as a finite body and mind, we cannot experience infinite happiness. So our nature is dissatisfaction. We're always dissatisfied. We seek one thing after another. In material ways, we, we believe happiness lies in an outside object. But if we have a little bit more, a little better salary or more wealth or nicer friends or something, we, we're always expecting something will happen in our life which will enhance our happiness. We're always looking for that happiness outside. But actually, according to Bhagavan, Ramana Maharaj, how we experience happiness, how we seem to experience happiness from external objects and external experiences, it's not that there's any happiness in those things per se, but when any desire or dissatisfaction arises in our mind, our mind is thereby agitated. And the more the mind is agitated, the more the happiness which is our real nature is clouded over. When a desire is satisfied, temporally that agitation subsides and a little bit of the happiness is within, as our real nature, is manifest. So we feel a little bit of pleasure, 
and then again the dissatisfaction comes and so we associate the pleasure with the external things which we think have caused that and so we continue seeking happiness externally. Mm -hmm. uh, what Bhagavan says is actually we're never going to be satisfied in this way. We're always going to be uh, enjoy a little pleasure here and there. There are so many things which we enjoy pleasure from but it's all very finite, very limited for pleasure and it's limited in time and it's limited also in the quality of the pleasure, pleasure Magnitude, yeah, de degree. Magnitude, yeah. The magni yeah, the degree, exactly. Mm -hmm. So if we want to experience the infinite happiness that is our real nature, we need to know ourselves. But that, the principle means, is self-investigation, who am I, what, what Bhagavan called who am I. Mm -hmm. Who am I, people sometimes take it to be a question. It's not that we verbally or mentally ask ourselves who am I. Who am I is meant is denotes the investigation that has to take place. We have to investigate to find out what this I really is. Yeah, I heard you use the analogy many times of uh, if someone hands us a book and says, what's in this book? We don't just sit there saying, what's in this book? What's in this book? What's in this book? We open the book and read it. We investigate yeah. experientially yeah. What, what's yeah. in the book. Yeah. Well, I'm sure we're going to talk at great length about the nature of uh, the Atma Vichara, but regarding happiness again for a minute, I think most of the people listening to this probably agree intuitively with what you just said, and they've read books which have said that. And I suppose, as I was thinking about it, I was thinking, well, how do we know this, that the, you know, that the inner nature of life is happiness and that it's not to be found in any permanent and substantial way in outer things? I mean, we, do, we experience that part of it all the time. Yeah. I mean, we can take it on scriptural authority, and we, yeah. can, we can take it on the authority of great teachers like Ramana, yeah. like, like Bhagavan, yeah. who, who yeah. Told, yeah. told us that. But I think in addition to those two things... People have an intuitive aroma or, or, you know, intuitive sense that that is true. They, they somehow, yeah. and maybe they have glimpses of it from time to time. So it's not just yeah. a vague intuition, well, it's an experience that they, yeah. you know, they want to culture and, and make more stable and complete. Yeah. Well, generally, I mean, even in our ordinary external experience, we, we associate peace with happiness. When, when our life isn't disturbed, when things are peaceful, calm, we are, happy, but then our own mind rises and is dissatisfied and wants something more. But generally, uh, uh, nobody feels that the peace is, is, is suffering and until the mind gets involved and gets bored and wants something more. But peace in itself is happening. That mm. is one clue we have. When our mind is much agitated, we're usually not very happy. The agitation of the mind is when the mind is calm but we feel more happiness. That is, that's one indication. Another very clear indication, every day we experience a state in which the mind is not active, namely the state of deep sleep, dreamless sleep. And in that state, we are calm, peaceful and happy. Mm -hmm. I don't think anyone fears to go into sleep thinking they're going to be miserable in sleep. Right. Uh, okay, we, we may sometimes get nightmares, but that's not that's sleep not sleep. Itself. That's a dream. But mm -hmm. in sleep itself, I, I've not yet met anyone who's complained that miserable in sleep. And the reason for that is the activity of our mind, which is obscuring the happiness, which is our real nature. When the mind subsides in sleep, we experience that happiness. Yeah, so we all have these, we all have these experiential yeah. clues then that, that, yeah, you know, yeah. that a quieter yeah. mind yeah. E equates with greater happiness. Yeah, yeah. We can't actually prove that this is the case until we experience it ourselves. 
when sages like uh, Buddha or Bhagavan, so many sages have been there, who basically taught us that infinite happiness is attainable and we have to seek it within. To a certain extent, we have to take that on faith because all we've ever experienced is finitude. We have never experienced anything as, uh, according to, to the sages, actually we experience it all the time. But now that we mistake ourselves to be a finite being, it seems to us we have never experienced anything infinite. To a certain extent, we have to take it on faith. But we can so also take it as a, yeah. as a scientific um, yeah, exactly. theory that we can yeah. investigate. Hypothesis. Exactly, exactly. Yeah, we hypothesis. Don't have to take, we don't have to blindly believe it. In fact, Bauer never recommended anyone believe anything. He used to say, doubt everything. Doubt even the existence of the doubter. Um, that is the mind. In any learning process, a certain amount of trust in those who have gone before us if we're learning some scientific subject, we don't automatically doubt everything that our teachers tell us. We take it on trust that people have investigated this, they have found this, we, can, we don't have to blindly believe it. As part of a learning process, we take it on trust. Okay, this is probably the case because other people have, um, have found that the, the matter is actually composed of atoms or whatever. But if we want to, if we want to, we can get the re requisite education and we can yeah, investigate that for ourselves. ourselves. Right. But the problem is with any external knowledge, there's always a chance that whatever we experience could be an illusion. Mm -hmm. We can never be sure of anything. In fact, if you want to take doubt to the absolute extreme, we cannot be sure there's an external world, we cannot be sure there's anything except I and what I am experiencing at this very moment. Even our memories, for instance, what I was doing five minutes ago, I'm not experiencing that now, I'm only experiencing a memory of that. And that, that memory is just a thought, an idea in my mind. And even what we're experiencing now, yeah. I mean, we know that we're yeah. only we're yeah. only experiencing a sliver yeah. of of the electromagnetic yeah. field, yeah. and our yeah. senses can only give us a, a little pinpoint of what's you know really going on. Yeah. Everything is open to doubt, except I am. One thing that we cannot uh, reasonably doubt is the fact that we exist. We may not know what we are, but we know that we are. If we didn't exist as something, we couldn't be experiencing all this. So the one indubitable experience we have is I am. Everything else is open to doubt. Have you ever heard anybody raise any intelligent objections to that assertion? There are philosophers who have, in Western philosophy, of course everyone's heard of cogito ergo sum, Descartes saying, I think therefore I am. There are philosophers who, who have said that they think he think he's asserting too much. All he can say is there is thinking. Hmm. But actually, that's not our, expe our experience when we think. We always think I think, we always experience it as I am thinking. Mm. At least, but thinking actually has two sides to it. When we think, we, we both produce the thought and we experience the thought. Even if we have set aside the producing of the thought and say thoughts just come, we cannot deny the fact that there is something that we call I which is experiencing these thoughts. And yet, there are plenty of spiritual people running around these days saying there is no I. You know, the, I mean, you just said that's the one thing we can be certain of, but there are a lot of people who are out there saying there is no I. Okay. This is often taken to be a fundamental difference between Buddhism and Advaita. Advaita says I is the only reality. Mm -hmm. Buddhism says anatta, anatma. But this is very much a confusion in terminology. 
because actually the the Sanskrit word anatma, or the, the Pali equivalent of which is anatta, doesn't mean no self, it means not self. What's the difference? If I say this is not a telephone, I'm not saying there's no telephone, I'm just saying, I'm, I'm pointing to something and saying this is not something. One of the sayings of Buddha from the uh, Pali Canon, which is often quoted as the authority for this doctrine of no self, so-called no self, is he said all dharmas are anatta. A dharma means, dharma is a word which has many different meanings in different contexts, but basically dharma means, it comes from a, a Sanskrit root which means to hold, dhru, and it can, so it means what is ho holding together, or what is upheld. Uh, some people interpret that everything that is constructed, everything that is formed or made, is not self. And there's also a, a verse in the Pali Canon in which Buddha s says, there is that which is unborn, uncreated, unchanging, un I can't remember the whole series of it, but he gives a, a list of, of attributes saying that they, it is infinite, it is unlimited, it is not born. There is such a thing. If there were not, there would be no escape from birth, uh, limitation, and all the other. I mean, then this is all the opposite. So Buddha hasn't denied the existence of a reality. If we are to experience that reality, if that reality is infinite, we are something that is finite. If we are something that is born, we cannot experience the unborn. So unless that reality is ourself, what we essentially are, it would be impossible for us to experience it. When we consider this idea of no self, it's not very clear what it means actually, because when we say the self of something, there are not two things, a thing and itself. A self is what something is. If I say I myself, I'm not talking about two things, an I and some possession of mine called self. I myself, self is referring to what a thing is in itself. So. To say something has no self, in effect saying it doesn't exist. So if anything exists, it has a self, because it is. Everything is its own self, if you get what I mean. My understanding, when Buddha said that all dharmas are not self, are anatta, he's not saying there is no self. He is saying all these, everything manifest, everything cognizable is I, and even the cognizer is not the essence, is not what we essentially are. It is not only actually in Buddhism that, that it is said there is no self. In a sense, it is said that like that in Vedanta. In Vedanta, it is said this body, this mind, all these things are not self. These are all unreal. There, there is no mind. It is an illusion. So it, it, there's actually a, a lot more common ground between Buddhism and Vedanta when it's generally recognized. Philosophy in India is very, very ancient. Indian philosophy goes back at least 3,000 years and probably much before that. In India, the word for a philosophy is darshana. Darshana means a view. So always in any intellectual activity, there will be many views. Buddhism is one view, Vedanta is another view. Always in India, there was a lot of debate between all these different viewpoints. Often, the, in the course of debate, people tend to exaggerate differences in order to try and assert my way is right. But uh, according to Bhagavan Ramana Maharshi, 
all argument is useless because we're not going to achieve anything by just and ultimately all differences are mind created if you want to know the reality we have to go beyond differences it is true in a sense but there is no self in the sense that what we now take to be ourselves is unreal it's a mere appearance but underlying this for every for every appearance there has to be some basis if we see a rope lying on the ground in the half light we can mistake it for a snake the snake is an illusion but there's some basis for that for rope if there wasn't a basis for something there couldn't be an illusion and as the basis for whatever illusion there is or whatever yeah whatever illusion there is there has to be something that is experiencing that if there's absolutely no experience at all there could be no illusion so any illusion points to the existence of an experiencer so what we've established yeah. so far then is mm. that there is an essential self or essential yeah. na nature to to the mind yeah. or to, to life yeah. which yeah. and and that it's desirable to find that because yeah. it's a infinitely happy field of yeah. infinite happiness yeah. there's yeah. there's some upanishadic yeah. verse which says that contact with brahman is infinite yeah. joy yes so that sounds good yeah. uh, and yeah. so we want to yeah. investigate in what whatever way we can yeah. to make that connection to have that yeah. experience yeah. yeah and that's what atma vachara is all about as yeah. i understand it is. it it is exactly because if it is true that that happiness is what we really are mm -hmm. in order to experience that happiness we have to experience ourselves as we really are and right. in order to experience ourselves as we really are if we want to know something the primary tool we have for knowing anything is our power of attention mm -hmm. when scientists set out to know about far away galaxies or to know about atoms or whatever they set out to know about they may have so many instruments for telescopes for seeing far away things or microscopes for seeing small things or even this uh, accelerator that they have in CERN in CERN exactly all the, all they may have so many instruments but without attending to that they cannot get any any knowledge from it our power of attention is our basic instrument by which we come to know anything to know things outside we've got our basic instruments our five senses our eyes ears and things but to know what we are by using our senses we cannot know ourselves because our self is not yeah. some object yeah yeah because our self is that which is experiencing things through the senses right there's no instrument by which we can investigate what we are the only tool we have to know what we are is our power of attention from the time we wake up in the morning till the time we go to sleep at night and from the time one dream starts till the end of that dream what we are doing constantly is attending to things that seem to be other than ourselves whether they're really other than ourselves or not we don't know but they at least they seem to be um all these objects of the world seem to be different from myself even the thoughts that arise in my mind seem to be different from myself i don't think i am this thought no there's I I my my thoughts therefore yeah. there's a me yeah. and there's a thought yeah exactly yeah. we are constantly attending to things other than ourselves in the, as a background to all these things whatever else we experience we also experience i am because it's always i am experiencing this so there is a background of self awareness underlying all our other experiences but we tend to overlook that 
not pay attention to it, and we, we attach more importance to other things. Like, when, if we go to a cinema, we see a picture projected on the screen. We sit there looking at that screen for two or three hours, but we never actually see the screen. We, we are seeing the screen, but not seeing it, because our attention is not on the screen, but on the pictures which are moving on the screen. Self-awareness is always there as a background, but we're constantly overlooking it, because we are more interested, we find more appeal in the external things, in the things that we're experiencing. Yeah, let me interject a question here now. Yeah. So I'll ask you two or three questions in a row, and then yeah. you can answer them. One, yeah. one would be, is, is this because the senses, by their very nature, their, their functioning, are outer-directed? That's one question. Yeah. Another question is, doesn't it seem odd that if the self is infinite joy, uh, mm. we, we should find ourselves so fascinated by all, everything other than the self, you know? It seems like that, that's where our fascination yeah. would lie, yeah. but yeah. It, it doesn't. And so yeah. we're, we're like these, you know, people who've yeah. won, the, won the lottery and don't realize yeah. that we're walking around yeah. mul multimillionaires begging yeah. on the street for, for pennies. Yeah. yeah, exactly. Your first question about the senses, we shouldn't blame the senses. The senses... Uh, they're doing uh, what they do. They're doing what they do. It's our attention which goes out through the senses. Mm -hmm. It's because we, the mind, have so much taste in experiencing these external beautiful sights, sounds, or whatever. And even when we close our eyes, we continue thinking of these things in our mind. So we've got so much interest in the external world that interest is not, cannot be blamed on the self, on the, sorry, on the senses. It can only be blamed on the mind, which has that interest in these things. In a way, do we really have to use the word blame? Because without our, okay. our, without our attending to the external yeah. world, we'd all okay. be sitting in the mud. I mean, we've, we've yeah. built, we build ourselves yeah. homes and uh, yeah, yeah. all kinds yeah. of conveniences. Okay. I didn't mean blame in a negative way, but I mean, if we had to attribute cause to, to our going to our, out... To our estrangement from the self, yeah. Yeah, it is, it is our, own, our own interest, our own desire for these... Um, for experiencing these external things. Let me, let so me interject to another question here to just throw into the mix yeah. and have you comment on, and that is that doesn't it seem that there's a, a natural tendency that the mind has or the attention has to seek greater happiness? And yeah, yes. as you were saying in the very beginning, that attention is, is kind of misdirected in the sense that it's looking for happiness where ultimately it cannot be found. But yeah. non nonetheless, uh, you know, if we're sitting here talking and some yeah. be beautiful music starts all of a sudden, our attention yeah. will naturally shift to that without effort yeah. because it's, it's charming. It offers greater yeah. happiness. Yeah. So we're constantly yeah. following that tendency yeah. toward greater yeah. happiness. And yeah. perhaps that very tendency, which keeps the mind outer-directed, could actually be used to enable it to become inner-directed if it could just... Yeah take a correct uh, turn, it would yeah. find increasing charm in the direction of the self. The more we practice being self-attentive, the more, the more the mind will be drawn to that. When we start off, we are unfamiliar with that. Though, though there's always that background of self-awareness, we are unfamiliar with keeping our attention just dwelling on that self-awareness, away from all other... Yeah, there's a deeply ingrained habit to always yeah. have the attention outer-directed. Yeah. And it's it, through decades of experience, it's been deeply ingrained. And so we're kind of like it's, we're on new, new territory when we try yeah. to turn yeah. it 180 degrees. Yeah. yeah. And also, there's another reason why many people, when they start this practice, it's not just when we start. We, we, most people complain that it's difficult, even if they've been at it for 
many, many years, they still say it is difficult because the mind feeds on objective experiences, on experiencing things other than itself. It's, it's uh, attention to other things which sustains the illusion of mind. And here the practice you're referring to is Atma Vichara. Yes. Yes, uh, self-inquiring. When the mind turns its attention towards itself, because it actually, according uh, to the experience of, of testimony of, uh, of Bhagavan, Ramana Maharshi, there is actually no such thing as mind. If we, the mind seems to exist so long as we're attending to other things. If we turn our attention inwards and try to find out what this mind is, it dissolves and all that remains is I am. Not the thinking eye that we're now experiencing, which is the mind, but just the being eye, the pure eye. So the, the existence of the mind, the, the thinking eye, is threatened by turning its attention southwards. The more it attends to things externally, the more the illusion of its own existence is strengthened. The more it turns its attention towards itself, the more that illusion begins to dissolve. Because the mind... Uh, we experience ourselves as mind, rather than saying the mind. We experience ourselves as mind, and uh, we, we have a natural instinct, a natural desire for self-preservation. When we, because we experience ourselves as a body, we do everything we, we can to avoid danger to the body. We don't walk out in front of a bus because we don't, we want to preserve this body. When we're hungry, we eat. When we're tired, we sleep. We're doing so many things to, to preserve this body and try to keep it going for as many years as possible. Mm -hmm. So also, just like we try to sustain this body because we experience this body as I, we try to sustain this mind because we experience the mind as I. And when we turn our attention inwards towards I alone, we find the mind is beginning to dissolve. And so we, we instinctively try to struggle for survival. And the easy way for us to survive as mind is to attend to other things. Hmm. So the natural tendency of the mind is to try and go outwards, to continue feeding on external experiences. Okay, let me throw in a question and a comment here. Um, I would say that there's an even more fundamental natural tendency of the mind, which is to seek a to, just to seek greater happiness. I mean, you could, yes, boil, yes. You could boil it down yes, to that. Yes. And, and, you know, we're accustomed to finding that out externally, so therefore yes. that's our habit and that's what yes. the mind tends yes. to try to do. Yes. But if, if greater happiness could actually be shown to the mind, so to speak, in yes. an inward direction, the mind would say, oh boy, let's, let's yes. go for that. It seems to yes. be gr greater, and that's what yes. I want is greater yes. happiness. Well, now, now, I've heard you say many times in your writings and your talks, that the mind and body are interrelated. Like, you, yes. I, for instance, there was one talk where you said if you eat a few garlic cloves or maybe have a mm. cup of coffee, your mind is going to be agitated because you've yes. done something to the physiology yes. that is going to cause the mind to yes. change in its functioning. Yes. Yes. And uh, I would suggest that when you start to practice Atma Vachara, and you're the expert on that, so mm. don't, don't let me put words in your mouth, that the, the mind is kind of settling down or if you will if mm. I can use that terminology yeah. and that and because again the mind and body are interrelated the yeah. body settles down the physiology settles down accordingly mm. and when wh when the body settles down what happens uh, you know it starts to purify itself it starts to purge yeah. itself of we could say vasanas you know deep yeah. impressions yeah. Yeah. And, and so when those when the body has settled down because the mind has settled down then the vasanas start to be stirred yeah. up then yeah. that that's corresponding 
correspondingly going to stir up mental activity again, yes, yes. and so we're going to start having all these thoughts. Yes. And so it's not like either aspect of it is unnatural. Both yeah. b both body and mind are following their natural tendencies, yeah. and it's a kind of a, a really a collaborative process yes. through which, through over time, can bring about a total transformation of both. Yeah, yeah. Can use the analogy of if you've got lots of very light particles. Your, your, your voice cut out, cut out for a so second there. Tendency, oh, sorry. Um, repeat what you just said, if you've got lots yeah. of... If, if you've got lots of particles floating in water, okay. and they're lighter than water, so their natural tendency is to float to the surface. Right. So long as you're stirring the water, hmm. they'll be mixed in the water, and uh, they'll be spread throughout the water. But if you allow the water to become calm, they begin to float to the surface. Mm -hmm. So also, when we... When we begin to experience the calmness by turning our attention towards I, all the lighter material in our mind, which is our vasanas, mm -hmm. our, our old desires which are, have been there for a long time, they begin to come to the surface. Hmm. Good analogy. So what uh, Bhagavan Ramanahashi says is we need not, we, normally these distract our attention away from self. But uh, whatever distracts our attention, we're experiencing that. And we are there as the experiencer of that. So actually, we can divert our attention. Um, he, he described it in, in words, in terms of questioning. To whom is this experience? Who am I? And then turning our attention back in. But he doesn't mean we actually have to go through a, a questioning process. What he's trying to draw our attention to is every experience we have, every thought that rises in our mind, every feeling we have, Every sight we see, they are there because I am. Yes. So we are always there. If we train our mind properly, nothing becomes a distraction, but everything reminds us of our own existence. Mm -hmm. So if we cultivate this habit of turning the attention southwards, eyewards, we will find it keeps on coming back again and again. Whatever experience is there, of course, sounds a bit ideal when I say this, in practice, our mind keeps on getting dragged away and towards other things because we still have very strong vasanas. But by practicing this more and more, we can, we can weaken those vasanas, we can weaken the vasanas to think other things, and we can increase what is sometimes called the satvasana, the liking just to be. So the more we abide in that state of just of self-awareness or self-attentiveness, which is a state of just, it's not an activity because an activity of the mind, when, when we think anything or tend to anything external, our attention is moving away from its source, which is ourself, towards something else. But when we turn our attention towards ourself, it's not moving anywhere. It's, it's remaining in its source, remaining where it originates from. Self-attention is not actually an activity. It's a state of being. But it does so sound the, like a practice. I mean, it sounds it, like... It uh, is a practice, but yeah. it's a practice just being, not a practice of doing. I see. It's, uh, it's an effortless uh, practice. Yes. It, well, it's not exactly effortless because... Well, it is. Truly well, if there's, speaking, if there's truly, effort, then okay, there must be doing. Okay. No, no, no. <laughs> truly speaking, it is effortless because our nature is just being. We don't need any effort to be. Right. But because we have a strong liking to do, to think, to... Uh, see, to hear, to all, all these things, withdrawing our attention from everything else seems to require effort. Yeah. So, but it's not an effort to do, it's an effort to be. It's an effort to just be. We don't need effort to be as such, because 
whether we're doing or not, we, all, we always are. But it's an effort to just be, that is, to be without doing all these other things. There's a verse in the Gita, yeah. no, no effort is lost and no obstacle exists. Yes, you know? yes, exactly. And uh, so it sounds to me like it's a sort of an effortless effort. It, it's, uh, in fact, there's a verse in the Vedas someplace that says, be easy to us with gentle effort. Yes, exactly, exactly. Yeah. It is a very gentle effort. And that's, an, that's another nice clue that uh, Bhagavan gave uh, about practice. He said, if a cow has run away from its stall, if you run after it with a stick, it's going to just run far, further away. Right. But if you come after it with some nice green grass, you can slowly tempt it back into its stall. Yeah. So also, our practice should be like that. So what is the green grass in Atma Machara? What, what, is the, what is it that we're using, so to speak, to tempt the mind, uh, using the cow analogy, to yeah. come back to the self? Well, each one of us may find, find different ways that work well with us. I mean, if we are of a devotional bent of mind, believing that God is that which is existing as I am, in, within us as I, if we, really, if we firmly believe that God is I, that our love for God will uh, draw our attention constantly back towards I, because we believe that is the real form of God. Though we may have images of God as Shiva or Jesus or Buddha or whatever we, external image we may have of God, that is not the true form of God. E even the name or form of Ramana, which devotees of, of Ramana are devoted to, that is not what he really is. He himself said, uh, Ramana is that which exists in the heart of every living being as I. If we begin to associate the name of God, some, like if we're, uh, so when we're Krishna Bhakti and we love uh, singing the name of Krishna, if we begin to associate Krishna, Krishna says in Gita, I am the self in the heart of every being. Mm -hmm. So if we begin to associate Krishna with the I within us, whenever we repeat the name Krishna, Instead of our attention going out to an external form of a blue-skinned cowherd playing his flute, our attention will instead turn back towards I, because that, mm. that external form of Krishna is just a, a temporary manifestation, whereas his permanent form is as I. So whatever form of God we happen to be devoted to, if we're Christian or if we're, whatever we are, we can, we can apply the same thing. If we really believe that God is that, is Christ said in the Bible, seek you first the kingdom of, of heaven, and the kingdom of heaven is within. Mm -hmm. he, in fact, he says, I think if I remember correctly, he said something like, they say to seek it here or there, but lo, right. the kingdom of heaven is within you. Lo is a rather archaic English, but lo actually means look. He's not just telling us the kingdom of heaven is within you. He says, look, see, lo, behold, the kingdom of God is within you. He's telling us to look within. So uh, what you're saying now seems to be a little bit more generous than what I heard you saying in some of your talks, because there you were, you were kind of saying like anything other than pure Atma Vachara is a, is a distraction because you're giving your attention to a mantra or to a god or to a this yeah. or to a that. But now yeah. you're saying that these things can actually, if I understand you correctly, yeah. can actually be triggers to yeah. really accomplish what Atma yeah. Vachara yeah. is it, attempting to accomplish. Exactly. I mean, it's... It's, um, this is what I, we were saying about the green grass for a cow. Yeah. Some people are naturally devoted to some name or form of God. Mm -hmm. And if they are convinced that, that, that the real form of God is I, 
they can associate that name of God, Krishna or Ram or whatever it happens to be, with the feeling of I within them, and therefore they can use that as a means to draw their attention back to I. Hmm. That, that is just one possibility. Sure. Other people are, are not so much drawn to the path of devotion. They will find other ways. Maybe um, some people are more of a sort of a philosophical bent of mind, so they, they want to know, to know the truth. And so it can be, it can be more clues on the path of knowledge of how, how, do, how do we know that anything is, is real? The only thing which is the basis of all our knowledge is I. So before trying to know other things, we should first try to know this I. I mean, there's so, so many different types of clues which can be given, which different clues will appeal to different people. Even to the same person, to each of us, there'll be different clues which appeal to us more at one time, other clues appeal to us more at another time. Mm -hmm. the, the most basic of all things, all of us, whether we are of a scientific bent of mind, philosophical bent of mind, or a devotional bent of mind, whatever bent of mind we are, one thing which we all share in common, we're all seeking happiness. So that is the, the most fundamental thing. If we, if we are convinced that happiness lies within, or even if we are ready, even if we're not firmly convinced, if we at least think that it's an idea worth investigating, that again is a, the green grass. Bhagavan actually doesn't ask us to believe anything. He, he says this is his experience, and he, he says if you want to know whether this is true or not, you have to find out, you have to experience it yourself. Simply knowing all the philosophy, knowing all these things, we can go on and on reading books, but it's not going to solve our problems. Our problems can be solved only by the direct experience of what we really are. Important point. And it is kind of common these days for people to mistake uh, an intellectual understanding of non-duality for the actual experience yeah. of it. But the understanding, even a yeah. fa fairly clear one, can be a far cry from the actual living yeah, experience exactly, of it. Exactly. Yeah. So when you say I'm an expert on, in self-inquiry, I don't claim to be an expert. I'm still a seeker on the path. I'm still experimenting with self-inquiry. Mm -hmm. And I don't think anyone can be said to be an expert in self-inquiry until they've actually experienced the, 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 self. the, the, goal, the goal, the self, yes. Yeah, and I, he I heard you mention that yeah. if the experience is really 100% clear, yeah. then that's it. I mean, you're that's done. That's it, that's it. Just you know, one moment of absolutely clear self-awareness Mm -hmm. and the illusion is dissolved forever. Yeah, but in the meanwhile, until that 100% happens, yes. there can be many glimpses where it's, it's a fair yeah. approximation. I mean, yeah. you, let's say yeah. you're walking yeah. in a fog yeah. and you see a tree, yeah. and you yeah. know it's a tree and it's not a horse yeah. or something, but, yeah. but you, you are seeing the tree, but yeah. it's not yeah. as clear as it could be. Yeah, yeah, yeah. So, yeah. I mean, even now, there's never a time when we are not experiencing the self, because the self is only I am. The trouble is this... It, this I am is mixed up with so many other things, with body, mind, all these things. Mm -hmm. So we're trying to separate. Sometimes, one analogy that is often used is that it's like peeling the layers off an onion. We go on peeling, peeling, trying to sift through all these things to get to the very center point. And when we get to the center, there's no onion at all. Right. There's no mind at all. There's only just being, self. One thing that I kind of thought uh, when I was listening to some of your talks is that the way you were presenting it anyway, it almost made it sound like self-inquiry, if you really want to get serious about it, it would be incompatible with many lifestyles. It would be incompatible with you know, being a stockbroker or running a big business or you know, um, ha even have, having five kids. Like, yeah. you, you have to kind of live a, almost a reclusive life to devote your adequate attention to it. 
Um, that is not actually, it's not quite so. I mean, it's not actually incompatible with anything because what, whatever we're experiencing, whatever we're doing, we always experience I am. So we can, in the midst of any activity, uh, be uh, practicing self-inquiry. It's not even necessary to be sitting with eyes closed or anything. We, we can be holding on to a current of self-awareness, even in the midst of other activities. So are, but, you, are you practicing so, self-inquiry right now as you're talking to me? Um, I wouldn't say I'm practicing, but when we talk about this subject, the, very, the mere talking about this subject is drawing our attention towards I. True, so, but, let, so, but, but what if you're running a car dealership and you have to be selling cars all day long? Can well, you, you know, yeah. can you do that? And um, well, as I say, I'm not, I'm not an expert in this. <laughs> I, I may be an expert in the theory of it, but in the practice of it, I'm no better than anyone else. I, I don't claim anything for myself. I try. I try is all I can say. Um, I'm sure there are people who could do that, people who are very much more advanced than me in the practice, but uh, my attention gets very easily distracted, I must admit. Let but me throw one thing in yeah. here, and, th and that is that um, I would assert from my understanding that someone like Ramana, to take an mm. you know, ideal yeah. example, yeah. Um, his maintenance of self-awareness yeah. is not accomplished in the least by him having to attend to it or think about no, it or hold it, on it, to it. Or, it's it, just it, like breathing. It's, it's, it's what he is. It couldn't, what he is. He, yeah, yeah, it couldn't be, yeah. uh, it couldn't be yeah. dislodged. He, it's yeah, solid, yeah. right? Yeah. Yeah. And I would suggest perhaps that to whatever extent we have attained that or established that, its, yeah. it's attainment or its establishment is it's kind of in our bones, so to speak. It, it's yeah. not going to be lost by th not remembering it. It's not going to be gained by trying to remember it. Yeah. Although we might devote periods of time when we yeah. do that, yeah. uh, in, in terms of our 24-7 experience, yeah. uh, there has to be a sort of an integration or a stabilization yeah. exactly. Exactly. That, that just really is not dependent upon any little tricks yeah. we're going to play yeah. with our... Yeah. Yeah. Well, that's true. The more we, the more we make effort to um, be self-attentive, the more we uh, familiarize so, ourselves with that. Yeah. And so we find, almost without our being aware of it, we continue to be aware of it, if you see what I mean. That obviously is, is a meaningless statement I made. No, it makes sense I'm, to I'm me. Just, I'm just trying to convey, it does somehow continue in the background, hmm. in a very tenuous sort of way. Yeah, or even not so tenuous, could, could be quite predominant. Uh, yeah, yeah, but, I mean, it, it does get, sometimes, sometimes it's much stronger than at other times, but mm -hmm. yes. It's, it's just sort of like, like you know, learning to ride a bicycle or something. When you're first learning, you really have to pay attention to it. It's very wobbly, but yeah. after a while, it's second nature. You never think yeah. about balance, it's yeah. just the way yeah. it is. Yeah. 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 Coming back to your question about um, certain lifestyles may be incompatible with this, mm -hmm. we can't uh, say categorically that is so, but I think, say you're uh, in finance or something, and your whole life is about uh, amassing wealth, that does seem to be a little bit incompatible with, with this, because uh, in order to go within, we have to give up the external desires. They have to slowly, slowly, it's not even we have to consciously do it, they do the, the importance we had formally attached to external things, to having material wealth and things, they become less and less important as we go on. It would be difficult living that lifestyle to practice self-inquiry. It's rather than practicing self-inquiry, it would be difficult to live that lifestyle. 
obviously, um, certain teachers like Shankara and others established lineages which were yeah. pri primarily uh, taken care of by monks. And over time, you know, the, the monastic orientation was yeah. emphasized. But in the scriptures, you know, you, ha you find people like Arjuna, who is being told yeah. to realize the self, then fight this battle. Yeah. Or King yeah. Janaka, who yeah. was yeah. said to be an enlightened yeah. king, who had all kinds yeah. of kingly responsibilities yeah. and wives and children yeah. and armies and all this yeah. stuff he had to deal with. Yeah. So it's not so much that these guys didn't have desires, but perhaps it was that they the desire did not overshadow them or yeah. did not yeah. did not cause uh, them to get drawn out into a, a narrow yeah. focus to the exclusion yeah. of of the self yeah so uh, maybe it's more of a challenge if you're if you're having if you have a demanding lifestyle or i don't know some would yeah, say yeah. it's more of an op it's actually more of an opportunity yeah. because it yeah. enables you to really ground it in the yeah. midst of yeah. any circumstance yeah yeah Bhagavan uh, never attached any importance. People, sometimes people used to say to him, isn't it necessary to become a sannyasi, a monk, in order to realize the self? He said, just like marriage comes according to destiny, so monastic status comes according to destiny. If that is destined to happen, you cannot avoid it. Hmm. If it is not destined to happen, even if you seek it, you won't achieve it. So, <laughs> in fact, he taught that our external life is shaped by grace. We are given the, the type of external life, the type of circumstances that are most conducive to us. We I love may that. Think, we, we may think that if we go and sit in a cave and spend uh, 12 hours a day meditating, that will be very conducive to our realizing the self. But it may not be so, because we may be sitting in that cave thinking so many other things. Whereas we may be in a worldly situation, we may have wife and children and be living in poverty and having to work so many hours a day. But that, that very circumstance may be giving us even stronger yearning to go beyond all these limitations and to experience the happiness that is within. That's beautiful. So we, I, I love we, that. We, we can't say for each one of us. Yeah. Can, um, again, this is something we have to take on trust because there's no way I cannot uh, prove this. I cannot give any logical argument to say that this is so. But... Uh, uh, on the testimony of, uh, of Bhagavan, and I think quite a few other sages have also said this, whatever we are given to experience in our outward life is what is most favorable for us at that particular stage of our life. It also points to the notion that God is omnipresent and merciful and that there's a sort of an evolutionary tendency in, in creation. Yeah. Because if life were just really dead matter with no intelligence yeah. inherent in it, yeah. then everything is capricious and arbitrary and things just, yeah. you know, shit happens as the bumper yeah. sticker yeah. says. <laughs> but if it's all divine and permeated yeah. with yeah. the divine, then how, yeah. could, how could not any yeah. every little instance be in yes. our best interests. Yeah. yeah, yeah. Yeah, if we talk all these things to someone who believes that, um, as many people do nowadays, that, that physical matter is the only reality and that even mind can, and consciousness can be explained in physical terms, right. what we're talking is gibberish. But I think there are very strong reasons for, for doubting that, such a view, that, uh, that everything can be explained in physical terms. I find that I mean, I've read a lot of philosophical arguments in, of that type. I find it singularly unconvincing. I think there's much stronger arguments uh, to say that consciousness is the basis of all things. I agree, and I think that those who um, espouse the materialistic perspective 
could actually be offered the the uh, the hypothesis, as you said earlier, mm. that yeah. you know that that is not the case, and then given systematic yeah. procedures whereby yeah. they could investigate yeah. whether they're right or wrong. Chances yeah. are they're not going to be so open-minded as to do that, but yeah. but yeah. they as yeah. well as anybody else yeah. could experience that consciousness is fundamental, yeah. that yeah. The, the the divine is you know yeah. go governing the universe and yeah. so on. Yeah, <laughs> I mean the, the spiritual part is basically it's a. Uh, it's a scientific investigation. Very much so. We, we, we've got a hypothesis. The hypothesis is that we are infinite happiness. Mm -hmm. Now we're testing that to yeah. find out whether it's true or not. It's exactly the same what the scientists are doing. They set themselves hypothesis and they test it. Yeah, and, and earlier on you were mentioning like you know the Large Hadron Collider and, and yeah, yeah, you know various yeah. scientific instruments. Well, we've yeah. got a scientific instrument that is actually much more sophisticated than any yeah. of those. You know, yeah. this is yeah. this is it. Yeah. The, yeah. the human nervous system, exactly. even a single cell of the human nervous yeah. system, is yeah. more more fantastic yeah. than the Large Hadron yeah. Collider. Yeah. So, yeah, exactly, exactly. <laughs> yeah, use that instrument. Yeah. One thing I found kind of interesting in what you and what I heard you saying in one of your talks is that, you you know, there's a certain um, notion in spiritual circles these days sometimes that you should give up the search and that there's something yeah. kind of wrong or or elementary or or in being a seeker and people say oh when i was a seeker blah 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 yeah. but you know you, you kind of alluded to various saints uh, yeah. and sages who were ardent seekers even though they were yeah. very well along on the path yeah. and yeah. And they had not given up the search yeah. by any means. They were yeah. just not satisfied with anything yeah. less than yeah. the totality. Yeah. We shouldn't give up the search until we have given up the searcher. In, in other words, so long as we exist as, as, as a finite entity, we, everyone is searching. Even the ant, when it picks up a little piece of sugar and carries it, mm -hmm. it is searching for happiness. Mm -hmm. Every person, even the drunkard, the drug addict, everyone is searching for happiness in one way or other. The debaucher is searching for happiness. Everyone is searching for happiness. We're all seekers. And we, we, it's seeking is our very nature. Until we attain the infinite happiness that we really are, we cannot actually give up seeking. So why do you think that someone who is already really kind of highly enlightened, such as yeah. Ananda Moima or yeah. Amaji or one yeah. of these great s sages, yeah. uh, uh, will still have this fervent, vehement kind of uh, seeking energy, even though they're yeah. well along on the path? We can explain it in various ways. One is they could be, not consciously, but they could be... Setting an example? Setting an example is one thing. Mm. Another thing is, if they are really in that state, they are not the body and mind that we see them to be. Mm -hmm. But that body and mind, before they attained that state, had developed tendencies of devotion and of yearning and of seeking. Those continue in the body and mind, even after the person who was there has been dissolved himself. Mm -hmm. uh, Ramana Maharshi sang um, hymns in, in praise of Arunachala, praying for Jnana, long after he had attained it, Hmm. But it's that tendency just continues. I mean, that, that devotional tendency, which is probably there for many, many lives. There's a quote from Shankara. He said, yeah. the intellect imagines duality for the sake of devotion. Yes. So Ramana set up this sort of dualistic relationship with Arunachala yeah. for the sake of devotion. Yeah. Even while doing so, if you read the, the meaning of the verses, the duality and non-duality is interwoven. So many verses he's referring to Arunachala as the self, and one of the verses is Tirumbiya Handane Dinamaha Kankan Teriyam and Arunachala. Oh, Arunachala, 
you taught me, turning daily within, see the eye with the inner eye. The, the eye that is the capital mm -hmm. I with the inner eye. The duality and non-duality is all woven together there. Mm -hmm. And in the very first verse he says, oh, well, actually you root out the egos, ego of those who meditate on you in the heart, as Arunachala, that in the heart it has two meanings in Tamil, who meditate upon Arunachala's eye, it can also mean. When he mentions Arunachala like that, is he actually really referring to the mountain in South India, or is he referring to Lord Shiva, or is he referring to pure consciousness, or, you know, why all this both, fuss both, about our, both, the mountain? Both, <laughs> both, both. He's referring to both. Because we now take ourselves to be a physical body, we have a form, and so long as we have a form, we cannot conceive God except as a form. We can know theoretically God is formless. Mm -hmm. But in order to have a, a relationship with him as, another, as a person, we conceive him as a person, as, as a form. Worshipping a hill, a, a mountain, as the form of God is in a way a very abstract form. Instead of worshipping God in a human form, it's, in, it's a very abstract form, though, it, though it's a very solid material thing. It's a, to take a mountain as God is a very abstract idea. If you read his verses, in almost any, any of the verses, you can read two meanings into it. You can either read the, the meaning that Aaron actually is literally the physical hill, also that Aaron actually is I. And in so many places, he's saying, I mean, he literally says, he says Aaron actually is I. Is it with a lot of Ramana's teachings that um, you can tune into them on many levels according, many to your, levels according to your ability, the very same sentence or passage could and, mean and, and one thing or another? There are times when our mind isn't in a constant state. We're not constantly of one... Sometimes we're more emotional, sometimes we're more rational. So there are times when we, uh, that type of dualistic devotion may be helpful to us. Mm -hmm. we, we shouldn't get too caught up in that because we should be remembering that, that all the dualistic devotion is ultimately has to come back to I and that I is the real form of God. It, it, it is to suit different people at different stages of development but it's also to suit one individual within the different states of mind that we go through right. during the course of our life. Okay, so just to reiterate what you just said, basically, is, <clears throat> you know, on the one hand, there could be a number of different paths, or, you know, now we're broadening it out, aside yeah. from just Ramana's yeah. teachings, you know, karma yoga, bhakti yoga, yeah. jnana yoga, yeah. Yeah. Uh, e even yoga, uh, physical, hatha yoga, pranayama, yeah. all yeah. these different things have their significance, according to your makeup, your nature, what you need at a, any yeah. given yeah. time, yeah. but yeah. also even, uh, and so you could, you know, in the world, there are so many thousands of people in this and that and the other thing, yeah. but then also a single individual might go through stages or phases at which one, yeah. e each one of these things becomes relevant at one time and perhaps irrelevant at another. Exactly. Okay. We go through stages in our life, even within the course of a day. Of our life, a day, yeah. We can go frequently in different states of mind. Sure. Yeah. Just like at one point you feel like eating, another yeah. point you feel like exercising, yeah. another point yeah. you feel like sleeping. Yeah. So the same yeah. with spiritual in, in yeah. practices yeah. or... Yeah. yeah, okay. Yeah. You brought up about other practices. There's just one thing I'd like to clarify here. Mm -hmm. Many people reading uh, books of talks with Ramana Maharshi and those type of books, conversations, they think, oh, he, he approved all spiritual paths. That is true in a sense, but he didn't just say all paths are equal. He said any type of spiritual practice we do, other than self-inquiry, is a doing, it's an action, it's a karma. 
only when our attention is turned towards I does all action cease and we remain in a state of being. Mm -hmm. Any other type of spiritual effort we make, we make in the form of a spiritual practice is a karma, is an action. Mm -hmm. And he very clearly said, action cannot lead directly to the goal because the, the, the self, its nature is, is actionlessness. It's most, yeah. it, it is free of all action. So what, what any action we do, whether it's bhakti yoga, uh, raja yoga, karma yoga, any of these things, they all involve action. And any action, it can purify the mind. By purifying the mind, it leads us to the real path. It shows what the real path is. I mean, when I say real path, the ultimate path. I think, I think Chandra yeah. said something yeah. similar, which, yeah. you know, he said not all people are qualified for this highest yes. teaching, but so yeah. all these other things have their value yeah. in, insofar yeah. as they can purify. And, yeah, exactly, exactly. You know, there's that verse in the Gita that says, yeah. be, because one can perform it, one's own dharma, the lesser in merit, is better yeah. than the dharma of another. Exactly, exactly, yeah. yes. Ramana Maharshi approved all spiritual paths in the sense that they, some are suited for uh, some people, some are suited for others. Right. I mean, did, he feel, some, did he feel that anybody and his brother could just sit down and do Atma Vichara, or did he feel like certain people really need to undergo some well, he, purification he, he, before they could really do it successfully? Uh, he said anyone can do it if they want to do it, but there are some people who are just not, some people are just not drawn to this path. Right. Could one yeah. be drawn and yet find oneself yeah. incapable of doing it successfully and therefore have to do other things to become more capable? Or if you're some, drawn, you can do it? Some, some people feel that, but I think that is actually it's not quite correct, that, because I think it's very difficult to measure our success. We may find that we keep on, whenever we try to attend to self, we keep on getting distracted. But the very effort to try, the mere trying is itself, a step on the path. Mm -hmm. Every time we try, we are improving our ability to do it. Mm -hmm. So I think that it would not be correct to say, but it's impossible for anyone. But okay. every person is aware of I. Yeah. Any you, person can. You've start, probably heard the at term. Least for uh, a few moments on on that near feeling I. Sure. You've, you've probably heard the term neuroplasticity, that when, when mm -hmm. we do something, the brain actually changes yes, yes. as a result. Yes. And, you know, so every little bit. Yeah, it's changing yeah. the brain by yeah. degrees. Yeah. 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 And I, you know, I, I would imagine that if you, if, if, if neurophysiology really had it figured out in terms of what to measure in, in, in yeah. higher states of consciousness and enlightenment yeah. and so on, and if they hooked up Ramana Maharshi to you know, an EEG machine, yeah. they would see something remarkable. They'd see something you know, a little bit quite, quite um, different than the average person in terms of the way yeah. his brain was actually functioning. Maybe, maybe, I, I, I don't know that, because outwardly, he lived a life, he lived a life just like anyone else. I mean, yeah. there, there, there are no outward signs of, of what he, his inward experience was. Patient, in a way there very, weren't, yeah. yeah. Yeah, in a way, but I mean... I mean, he, 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 he stood he, out as being kind of yeah. a different yeah. person. Yeah, 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 that's true. But coming back to what we were saying about other parts, there's, there's some... Instances that happened that illustrate what his attitude towards other paths were. Mm -hmm. For instance, the one story I heard, someone complained to him, uh, Bhagavan, this path of self-inquiry you teach is very difficult. Can I do meditation instead? And he said, yes, okay. When that person went away, uh, other people asked, Bhagavan, why did you tell him that it's okay to do meditation? Because you tell us that, that self-inquiry is the only way. And Bhagavan said, 
he says it's very difficult. He says he can't do it. What's the use of me telling him, no, you must do it? Because he obviously doesn't want to do it. He asked if he can do meditation. I say, yes, you can do meditation. Next week he may come back here and he said, may say, oh, this meditation is very difficult. Can I do Japa? <laughs> and I will say, yes, you do Japa. And then later he'll come back and again he'll say, uh, this uh, Japa is very difficult. Can I do Puja? So uh, Puja means worship. That is right. uh, external physical worship. So I'll also say that. I, I can't force people to do what they don't want to do. But if, he, if, he, if people come to me and ask me, I don't know what to do, what, to do, what can I do, I will tell them to do this. Because this is all I know. This is all I've ever done, mm-hmm. he said. So he's t- teaching from his experience. He's teaching from his experience. Now let's, let's talk a little bit more about self-inquiry. I mean, I've heard of people doing self-inquiry and doing what you say not yeah. to do, which is sitting yeah. there saying, who am I, who am yeah. I, who am I, like a, like a mantra or something. Yeah. And yeah. That's, that's not what he meant by it, obviously. No. No. Um, but the actual subtle mechanics of what's taking place when a person is doing self-inquiry, it almost seems like at the very outset there's a dichotomy set up. There's this observer who is observing the... I, but then again, the I is the observer, so there's this kind of like, what, what's going on? Yeah, it, it's e- particularly at the early stages, it's easy to think of it in terms of one eye attending to another eye. Yeah, because the self is not an eye, it's not an object yeah, like any yeah, other object that you can look at, because yeah, yeah. you are that which is looking. Um, but actually, to, to find out what really self, so uh, another term that Bhagavan often used in uh, or tam- an English equivalent of a Tamil term that he used is self-attentiveness or self-attention, okay. um, which is basically what self-inquiry is. It's basically we're just turning our attention towards I in order to know what it is. Sorry, my, my, I was starting off to say something. So, left, the, um, so, so, so yeah. you're saying self-attention. So let's say I'm sitting down yeah. to practice self-inquiry yeah. Yeah. and I'm oh, just oh, sort yeah. of like allowing my attention to be with the presence which I know myself to be mm. and and perhaps in doing that uh, I withdraw more and more from the mm. from the senses from mental activity and yeah. that that presence shines more and more brightly I mean is that yeah. a, a yeah. fair description that's, of it that, that's a fair description but uh, yes yes that is one way of describing it what I was going to say is the word vichara it's often translated as uh, inquiry self inquiry huh? but I personally prefer the word self-investigation. Okay. It is inquiry, but it's inquiry in the sense of investigation rather than mm. inquiry in the sense of questioning or anything. So, Investigation has more of an experiential connotation, yes, whereas yes. inquiry has more of an intellectual that, connotation. That's what I feel. Yeah. So the, the meaning of vichara as it's used by Ramana, and he often uses it as a verb also, as a verbal form of it. So we can't say to inquire something. We investigate, I learn to inquire, I. We can inquire about I. It's a sort of roundabout way of, of putting it. So the word bichara means investigation. And I think it's significant in the choice of that word because in a sense it is an investigation. It's a path of discovery. If someone asks what is self-attention, we can give clues, but ultimately each one of us has to find out for ourselves. When ultimately we do find out what is self-attention, when we find out what is pure self-attention, that itself is the goal, that is self-knowledge. In a way, we are, we, we are learning the practice as we practice it, if you get what I mean. The more we investigate, the more we understand what the practice is, but not understand it in a verbal way, but understanding it experientially. Experiential. And sometimes when, when Bhagavan was asked by people, 
how to practice self-inquiry, he used to say, you need to be shown the way inside your own house. The way is subjective, not objective, so it cannot be shown by one person to another. You have to go in and discover it yourself. Hmm. And so you would just, someone came to you and said, okay, well, I'm sold. How do I do it? You yeah. would just say, sit down, close yeah. your eyes, and just find out for yourself. Find out for yourself. There are so many clues that can be given, but we have to put those clues into practice. And as we put them into practice, we ourselves find out what our ability to do that, our ability to focus our attention on our mere being, on our mere eye, gets refined as we practice more and more. Hmm. We discover more and more about it as we go along. It's almost, again, like learning to ride a bicycle. You can't like, explain in so many words yeah. how to balance. Yeah, you just yeah, have to get yeah. on it and try yeah. to experience yeah, yeah. it. Exactly. We're all learners on the path. Yeah. I mean, I haven't read your whole book, but yeah. um, there is probably no chapter in the book, in, or is there, in which you actually say, okay, here's, here's what you do, step one, step two, step three. No, because there, there is only step one, which is to turn your attention to I. It's a big book, as you've seen, 500 pages. In a sense, that's all unnecessary. It can all be said in one or two words. What I'm doing in that book is seeing the same subject from so many different perspectives as Bhagavan has done in his teachings, but in his teachings it's much more in seed form. I have just expanded those seeds according to my own limited understanding and a little bit of practice that I've done. And I put, I put there how I understand it, and some people find it useful. Some people have told me, oh no, it's a terrible book, it's, uh, you're so intellectual. So, I mean, it's not for everyone, but for people who have a similar bent of mind, you know, sort of a, inquiring bent of mind, more, possibly a more philosophical bent of mind. It does appeal to some people, it doesn't appeal to other people. So well, I'm enjoying it. it. I mean, it, it's um, of those who want it. I wouldn't consider myself an intellectual or anything, but uh, yeah. I, I think it's very clearly written, yeah. and there's a, it's, there's a lot of knowledge in each little paragraph, so you could even just read a page you know, before yeah. going yeah. to bed or something, yeah. and, and uh, it'll last you two years at that rate. <laughs> yeah. and if you open almost any page of the book, you will find I'm dinning in the same message there. If we just have to practice, practice, practice. We can understand it from so many different perspectives, but this understanding is, is useless if we don't actually try to experience it. Just for fun, uh, let's use your chapter titles as springboards for little discussions yeah. and okay. you know, spend another half an yeah. hour or so just okay. going, going yeah, through yeah. some of the points. So for instance, I, I think we've already covered this, but let, and so let's not spend 20 minutes on each one because we won't get through them, yeah. but let, let, in a nutshell, uh, chapter one, what is happiness? And I'm yeah. sure you'll answer this with reference yeah. to Ramana. Yeah. Well, I mean, that, that's really how we started off today's conversation. Mm -hmm. And the reason why I started the book with that uh, chapter, in uh, one of the most important works of Ramana is a small essay called Who Am I? Mm -hmm. Which was originally questions and answers asked by a devotee called Shiv Prakashan Palai. Later, he, Shiv Prakashan Palai published it as a small book, and then Bhagavan himself rewrote it as an essay. And when he rewrote it as an essay, he added a, a one paragraph at the beginning, which wasn't part of the original question and answers, in which he says, uh, I'll just read it, the meaning of it to you. Since all living beings desire to be always happy and devoid of misery, since in everyone the greatest love is only for oneself, and since happiness alone is the cause of love, 
in order to attain that happiness, which is one's own true nature, that is experienced daily in dreamless sleep, which is devoid of a mind, knowing one's self is necessary. For that, uh, jnana vichara, that is investigation of consciousness, we can say, jnana vichara, who am I, alone is the principal means. So he added this paragraph in order to start the subject from the point of happiness, because that's one, one thing which... As I, as I was saying earlier, whether one is um, of a devotional bent of mind or a scientific bent of mind or a philosophical bent of mind or whatever bent of mind one is, we're all seeking happiness. So this is a sort of uh, a, a good starting point, suitable for everyone. Okay. So in, in the same spirit, I started the book with that uh, chapter, What is Happiness? A lot of the ideas that I uh, wrote in that chapter is... It's in a way, it's an expansion. There's a, another book called The Path of Sri Ramana. It was originally written in Tamil, but in the English translation, Path of Sri Ramana, by Sadhu Om. And he starts in the same way. He's actually the first two or three chapters of his book are about happiness. It's a good so place to start. In, in, a, in a way, that's, uh, what I've written in that chapter is an expansion of a lot of the ideas which are in seed form in his book, which in turn are an expansion of what is in seed form in this first paragraph. Okay, the second chapter is, who am I? We've talked about this quite a bit already, and obviously the average person, if you ask them that question, they say, well, I'm Rick Archer, and I live in Iowa, and I do this job, and uh, and I have this wife, and this house, and these dogs, and all this stuff, but that has nothing to do with who you are. So is it possible to actually answer the question, who am I, in so many words? No, it's not possible. But what it is possible to do is to say what we are not. So basically that chapter would have been more appropriate to say what am I not as the title of that chapter <laughs> because it's basically it's explaining uh, why we cannot be either the body or the mind. Yeah, I, I can say in a nutshell what it is. We experience three states. Generally people think of sleep as a state of unconsciousness. Actually sleep is not a state of unconsciousness. It's a state in which we're not conscious of the mind or body or world but we are conscious of our being. If it was a state of absolute unconsciousness, we wouldn't be aware of sleep at all. Like when a film is projected on a cinema screen, there are so many frames per second, 25 or 20, 30 frames, whatever the speed is, and between those, each frame, there is a gap. But we're not able to grasp that gap, so we see a constantly moving thing. If we were not able to grasp a gap between waking and dream, or between one waking state and another, or between one dream and another, we would be aware of only two states, waking and dream. But we are clearly aware that there's another state. It's not just the two states we're in, we're also in another state. And when we wake up from sleep, we can often say, oh, I didn't have any dreams, I was sleeping very peacefully. So we are aware, but we were in a state. So we couldn't have been aware that we were in some state devoid of dream, devoid of any thought or anything, if we were not experiencing that state. Even sleep is a state of of consciousness, not a state of consciousness of anything, but just consciousness of of just being, consciousness of I. And incidentally, when when the consciousness really wakes up to itself in Mm. in terms of enlightenment, Mm. or if we want to use that word, then it shines brightly, so to speak, throughout the night. You know, throughout throughout sleep, it's not blotted out by the dullness yeah. of sleep as well, it or, yeah. Yeah. is for most people. So, someone like Ramana, I'm sure that pure awareness was, you know, maintained clearly 24 hours a day. Yeah, well, 
in a sense, yes. That, that's from our perspective. But from his perspective, there was no 24 hours, no, yeah, no yeah. day. These states, in our experience, there's the, the basis, which is consciousness. Mm -hmm. And in that consciousness, these states pass by. Waking passes, dream passes, sleep passes. and well, They're alternating states, but they're all... Uh, experienced by the basic consciousness there is. Why I, I say that, because it's quite important to understand that sleep is not the state of absolute unconsciousness, but we often imagine it to be, and it's often spoken of. So if we accept the state, that sleep is a state that we actually experience, mm -hmm. and we couldn't experience if we weren't conscious there, that's the basis of the argument. Then there's a simple principle in philosophy, principle of identity. If two things are identical, whatever is true of one must be true of the other. So if, if we are able to experience ourselves without experiencing the body, we cannot be the body. So we experience this, this present body in only one of our three states. In dream we experience another body. In dream we may experience having an accident, uh, losing an arm. But Flying through the up, air or whatever. Yeah, yeah, yeah so, so many things. So it's not the same body. Right. It's a, it, that body in dream is a mental projection. Mm -hmm. So also, according to Bhagavan, this, even this waking body is a mental projection. The whole of this world is just another dream. But whether people are ready to accept that doesn't really matter. The point is, we're able to experience a state where we're not experiencing, we're experiencing ourselves, we're experiencing our I, but we're not experiencing this body. Therefore, this body and I cannot be the same thing. They're two separate things. Because we're able to experience I in the absence of this body, or in the absence of any awareness of this body. So, so we cannot be the dream body, because we experience that only in dream, we don't experience it in waking or in sleep. So, what is common to waking and dream is the mind. It's the same mind, though it, it, experiences, it experiences different bodies as I in each state, it is the same mind that experiences waking and experiences dream. But this mind, as we now experience it as a thinking entity, is absent in sleep. So since we can, uh, we can experience ourselves, our being, in the absence of the mind, we cannot be this mind either. So that, in a nutshell, is what I say in, in, in that chapter. But I elaborate on mm -hmm. a lot more, and I give more arguments about why sleep is a state of consciousness. Yeah. But that's the essence of it. Very oh. systematic. Now, I have a question, but it might come up in one of these other chapters as we, mm. as we go through them. And so let me just ask it anyway so I don't forget. Yeah. And that, that is that I heard you often say that the world is a sort of a projection of the mind or a creation yeah. of the mind or, or something like that. Yeah. But, but obviously it would have to be the creation or projection of a more universal mind. And let me tell you what I mean. I mean, I mean we've been speaking about dreaming, yeah. for instance. Yeah. Um, you know, seven billion people in the world, let's say, and they all dream every night, but none of them know what the other has dreamed. It's, it's yeah. sort of in their own little world. But yeah. when they wake up, they could all wake up and they could all look up and see the moon. You know, so there's some yeah. kind of objective reality to the moon that's that's not. And, and if if some of them die, as people do every day, yeah. or are born, it doesn't mean the moon is somehow dying or being born. There's a kind of an objective reality which has a consistency that doesn't seem to uh, that that is kind of broader or independent of uh, pure individual subjectivity. We now take this world to be. Um to be as it appears to be. Mm -hmm. Because we now experience ourselves as a body, 
which is part of this world. So as real as this body is, so real must the world be. The, the body cannot be real in the absence of the world being real. Both are, are of the same level of reality. So you're so, saying if the world isn't real, then the body isn't real. Is that what you're saying? Exactly, exactly. We now experience this body as I. Mm -hmm. Because we experience this body as I, we experience the body as real. And because we experience this body as real, we cannot but feel the world is real. Mm -hmm. But it is as it appears to be. That is how it seems to us to be. But the world is there as an external world, a concrete world, and in that world there are many people. So those people seem to us to be like us, to have minds, to see the same moon that we see, to have the similar experiences to the experiences we have. But in dream, we also see a world with many people in it. And if we were having this discussion in a dream, if you um, called me on Skype tonight in your dream, and we had this discussion, we would be saying the same thing. You'll be saying to me, see, in this world, um, there, there are seven billion of us, and we all see the same moon. Does that not show that this, uh, this world is not the projection of uh, my individual mind, but it's a projection of some universal mind? We can apply, we can, you can make exactly the same argument in dream. And to you in dream, it will seem as convincing as it seems now in waking. So how can we be sure that this waking state is not just another dream? It doesn't seem so, it, or it will always seem to us, when we are in dream, the dream seems real. Only when we wake up are we firmly convinced, oh, that was just my imagination. Those people didn't really exist there. Well, I agree. I mean, I mean, Shankar referred to the, the world, or, or waking state as the long dream, or ignorance yeah. as the long yeah. dream, in, in the sense that anything that in this apparently real world, such as this glass, yeah. can, can be, you know, if if you look closely enough, as a physicist, let's yeah. say, it can be reduced down to pure nothingness or pure poten yeah. potentiality yeah. without any physicality to it whatsoever. Yeah. Yeah. Um, yeah, it's a dream. But what I'm saying is that it's it's strange. I mean, th there's this point that, you know, bring ten people into this room and they all see a glass. Have ten people go to sleep in this room, yeah. and they're not seeing each, they're not seeing the same things in each other's dreams. There, there seems to be some sort of. And another point, let me just throw this in: if I am the creator of the world through my ignorance or whatever, mm, um, through yeah. my projection, yeah. I am one heck of a creator because even one little cell in my fingertip is this marvel of intelligence and mm. you know complexity yeah. and, and yeah. fantastic thing. I couldn't possibly create a housefly <laughs> or what to speak of a, an entire planet or a galaxy yeah. or anything else. So there seems to be a much larger intelligence of which, you know, w from which the whole universe is projected or expressed, right. and we're just part. We're just little pinpoints of. Oh. You know, we're just little aspects of that projection, okay. and and that's what we are. Uh, okay. And and so, but we mistake ourselves to only be this, to only be the, you know, the the whole the hand mistakes itself to just be yeah. the fingertip or something. The right. the in, individuality is gained at the loss of universality. Yeah. Okay. Um, leave, uh, leave that aside for a moment. Let us uh, think about dream. In dream, we we know now we're in waking state. We know that what we dreamt last night was just our mental projection. Mm -hmm. But while we were dreaming, certain experiences were happening. Some of them may have been pleasant one experiences, some of them were not, may have been unpleasant experiences. But we couldn't just at will change those. 
we couldn't uh, suddenly change the, uh, change the world just by wanting to. It seems that we are, we are constrained within that world, what we're experiencing in dream. One difference that appears to be there from our waking perspective between dream and waking is that dream is often a very, a very fluid state. We're one minute uh, in one place talking to one person and the next minute we're talking to the same person but they've become someone else and the place has become something else. It's a more fluid, it's a more um, malleable. A malleable state. But that is not so in all dreams. In some dreams, some dreams are remarkably, even after waking up, we say, oh, that dream, seems, it seems so real. Mm-hmm. But it somehow seemed more consistent than the other dreams. That, that's our view from a, a waking state. This difference between waking and dream, I think it actually in one of the, Bhagavan translated some of Shankara's works, from Sanskrit into Tamil. And one of those works was a work, a small work called Drikdriti Avidika, the discrimination between the seer and the seen. Shankara gives one uh, explanation why dream appears less substantial than waking. In waking we are more strongly attached to our, to this body, so that gives, makes the state seem more consistent. To the extent to which we are uh, strongly attached to a, a body in dream. To that extent, that's, uh, to that dream state resembles uh, waking. And to the extent that uh, it's a very fleeting, uh, tenuous attachment we have to that body, to that uh, extent of a dream keep on changing scene. So that's one explanation for that. But let us say that in a dream, which is a, a dream which is, appears very much like this waking state, as some dreams do, but things seem consistent. We are not able in, in such a dream to change things at will. I see a, a red brick house there. I can't suddenly decide, oh, I want it to be a stone house instead. It will continue to be a, a red brick house, even though I think to myself I would like it to be a red brick house. Just like in waking state, we can't change the, the projection at will. In dream, we also can't change it at will. That is because in dream, we are not experiencing ourselves as the one who has projected the dream. We are, because we experience ourselves in dream as a body within that dream, though we have projected that dream, we do not experience ourselves as a projector, but as one of the people within that projection. The one who has, who has actually projected that is the person who is sleeping. And it is the same I. As soon as we project that world, we then identify ourselves as a body within that world, mm-hmm. and then we get caught up in that world, and we are bound by the world in, as it is. We can't just change it at will. In, in the waking state, we now feel, I can't suddenly decide, oh, um, Paris is in uh, America, yeah. New York is in uh, India, it just doesn't work like that. Yeah, in, things in have a world, certain rigidity yeah, or solidity. It has a certain rigidity. That is because I am part of this projection in waking. Hmm. It is my own projection, but I am now not experiencing myself as a projector. I am experiencing myself as as one of a projection, this body. And uh, even if you were experiencing yeah. yourself as the projector... Uh, you couldn't make Paris be in New York or something. I mean, Ramana, the world was as it... Who who is the projector of this world? It's it's God. Right, right, right. But what is God? God is only our own soul. Mm -hmm. But he's one layer below the dreaming person is the sleeping person. 
mm. who is projecting the dream, one layer below this, there's someone else who projected this world. That is, we call God. That's kind of what I was getting at. Yeah. I mean, because when there's any kind of implication that the world is a yeah. projection of the individuality, it, it's, it's problematic because obviously there's, there's a certain stability or structure to the world which seems yeah. in, independent of individualities. But yeah. if the world is a projection of God, it's not a problem. You know, that, that yeah. would account yeah. for the stability and, yeah. and the, yeah. the, the regularity that, of things, the, the that, reliability of the yeah. laws of nature and so yeah. on. But the God who has projected this world is not anything other than ourself. Right, agreed. Uh, in a sense, we can say that our sleeping self is God as the creator. In Hindu mythology, the creating function of God is actually considered as the... It is the function of God that is least revered. Of the three... Um, the three Brahma, more, Vishnu, uh, Shiva. Shiva, yeah. It's Brahma who has created this world. But nobody worships Brahma. In no temple is Brahma worshipped. Mm. So, because he's a, he's a sleeping fellow who's projected this world. That is why, though this world, actually we are the one who has projected this world, we have, we have projected it, and within this world that we projected, we projected a body uh, which we now experience as ourselves. So we now experience ourselves not as the one who has created this world, but as a creature within this world. So awakening or enlightenment really means yes. waking up to the realization that I am that from which the whole universe is ar arises or yes. appe appears to arise when um, in fact it actually doesn't. But no, it's not um, like the individual it, gets it, enlightened. It, it's even further than that. Okay. Is, um, not only the individual gets dissolved in the, in the clear light of self-awareness, mm. even the projector even Brahma gets dissolved. Hmm. In fact, all gods get dissolved, and only being remains. Hmm. And yet, the apparent individual still engages in the apparent world. Ramana liked to read the newspaper and listen to the radio. Probably he was following the events of World War II, you know, maybe yeah, that concerned yeah. him, and so on. So there's just sort of still a participation in the play, even though yes, one, one realizes said, the ultimate insubstantiality of it all. He, he said, all this is in whose view? He said, I don't say I have a body or mind. It's right. you who say I've got a body or mind. It's in your view that I am this body or mind. But my experience is that I'm not this body or mind. In fact, there's no body or mind in my experience. I just am. But the so, apparent body or mind the, the apparent body. had its apparent yeah. interests yeah. Yeah, and yeah. Yeah, you know, yeah. exactly. personality traits exactly. and yeah. so on and so forth. Exactly. Yeah. Yeah. Good. Well, you and I could go round and round all day, yes. I'm sure, with this. P.T. Barnum, as, uh, whom you may know as a great American showman, said, yes. always leave him wanting more. So, yes. <laughs> so perhaps so we, we should wrap it up and leave him wanting more. We've got through, I think, two chapters of the book. So. Yeah, <laughs> they can buy the book and they can read the yeah, rest of it. Exactly right. right. <laughs> Good. Yeah. So this has been a joy, Michael. Let me make a few concluding remarks. Thanks for this conversation. It's getting dark yeah. there, I can see. Yeah. And your smoke detector needs a battery, by the way. That little beep that happens every now and oh, then. It, it, okay, right, yeah. right. <laughs> this friend and I were uh, teaching meditation in Detroit, yeah. living in this little house. And every morning at 4 in the morning, this beep would start. And, yeah. and the reason is that batteries uh, get weaker as they get colder. So around 4 in the morning, oh. it would get, the beep would start. We'd get out of bed. We'd be crawling around on our hands and knees. Where is this beep coming from? <laughs> and finally, we realized it was the smoke detector. It needed a battery. <laughs> Okay, right. <laughs> <laughs>
Anyway, thanks for this yeah. conversation. Thanks for your beautiful book. Yeah. It's, uh, I think it's kind of a, a keeper, you know. It's the kind of book people yeah. could, could get and then just read in little bite-sized pieces yeah. over, over time. Yeah. It's a, really a, a beautiful work and uh, very clear. And if you want to familiarize yourself more with Ramana Maharshi, it would be a good one to read. And I think even even the very instruction you gave or the very point you made that, uh, you know, self-inquiry doesn't mean walking around all day saying, who am I, who am I, who am I? Hearing that might save some people from doing yeah. the trouble of doing that. <laughs> yeah. 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 So great. Those who would like to get in touch with Michael or read his book or listen to some of his YouTube videos and all, all those things, all those links to those things will be on his page in, in batgap.com. Um, as is the case with all the interviews I do. This is an ongoing series, so there are about 180, almost 190 other interviews archived there, which are uh, listed both alphabetically and chronologically. So feel free to explore and uh, check out other ones if you wish. You can sign up for an email newsletter to be notified every time a new interview is posted. There's a discussion group that springs up around each interview, which sometimes gets pretty lively, so there'll be one exclusive to Michael's interview. And there's also a general discussion area for people who just want to chit-chat and post YouTube videos about you know, their favorite songs or whatever. Uh, there's a donation button, which I appreciate people clicking if they're able. It enables me to devote as much time to this as I actually do. There's a link in every interview to an audio podcast in case you don't like to just sit in front of your computer and watch things, but you'd like to have it on your iPod and listen while you drive or whatever. You can subscribe in iTunes to the audio podcast. So thank you very much, those who are listening and watching, and thank you very much, Michael. And uh, we'll see you all next week. Next week it'll be um, Thomas Hubel, who's a German teacher of spirituality. Sounds, I've just started listening to his talks, and he sounds like a very interesting guy. So we'll see you next week. Thanks. <laughs>